0: So here we are, week 29 of the study of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 10, so let's just read verses 1 through 4. It says, the law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would not have been, would they not have been stopped being offered For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of goats to take away sin. Bulls and goats, excuse me. So, anyway, we went through this first verse last week and we saw that the Torah is a shadow of the good things that are coming. People often read this in the sense that the Torah was only a shadow, unimportant. And it's even translated that way in many translations. They'll they'll add translations as they would add that word only. However, if you look in the Greek, there is no word only there. It just says the Torah is a shadow of things to come. The writer is in no way trying to discount the Torah But he's telling us something extremely important, and that is, if you want to know the future, if you want to know what's coming, then you only have to look at the past, the Torah. We should all keep that statement in mind at the forefront of our lives and our minds. The stories in the Torah are shadows of things that will happen in our lives. I mean, look at the story of Korah or or Miriam, how they coveted Moses' position. And then think of how many people in this life covet things of other people, covet their position. They are stories that will teach us of the struggles that we're going to encounter in our lives. For as Solomon pointed out in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which man can say this is new? The commands in the Torah are shadows of how God would have us live. And I say shadows because until you see the substance of the shadow, they are subject to interpretation. Kind of like inkblots. They may look like one thing to one person, but to another something quite different. The true reality of those commands... Or I could say the truth of how we are to live our lives is found in the life of Messiah Yeshua as we're going to see today in his witness to our hearts as well. We looked at a similar statement by Paul in regard to the Feast of the Lord. Paul told us that the Sabbath, the new moon, the festivals, and even the foods that are given in the Torah were shadows of things to come that taught on the Messiah. The reality of those festivals is again found in the life of Messiah in his redemptive work. And I want to focus on something today that we, we find uh, in that passage as well that we never hardly ever talk about. Foods. It says the foods, right, are shadows of things to come as well. Now the writer says the offerings were shadows of good things to come. The sin offering was a shadow of the sin offering that would take away the sins of the world. The offerings that have been offered were teachings of the Messiah. They never cleared anyone's conscience before God. We looked at that before. The Hebrew word for offering means korban, to draw near. The offering was to be the vehicle by which we were able to once again, if we were separated from God, to draw near, to draw close to God again. However, in the first covenant, about the closest you were going to get was the outer courts of the temple. But we're told that that they were a shadow of the one who would unite us to God. And through Yeshua sitting at the right hand and having the right ear of God, we have access. We can go before the king. Amen? So what we're seeing is that nearly everything that God gave was a shadow of reality. Well, we have to take that a step farther. You know, there are 613 commands in the Torah, at least by latest count. With that in mind, I want to think of Yeshua's ministry and that of Paul. You know, Yeshua came preaching the reality of these commands. And it was a standard of Torah observance that was so far removed from what was observed in Israel in the first century that people often read it and think that he was abolishing the Torah. Doing away with the Torah. He knew that his words would be alarming because they were so far removed from many of the customs of the day. And so in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with the statement, Think not that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. In other words, he came to bring substance to these shadows. Now, like an ink blot, you may have thought it was this or that, but Yeshua came and proclaimed the reality of those shadows. And like I said, it was far removed sometimes from the established lifestyle. So far removed that it sounded like a new Torah. It sounded like, it sounded like, out with the old commands and in with the new. However, that was not the case. The reality was, it was out with out with some old traditions, and in with what was truth of the Torah, the true Torah observance. Amen? Now Yeshua only had three years to preach and teach, and we only get bits and pieces of what he taught and did. We only get small glimpses of how he taught Torah, but I will tell you this, I firmly believe that we received in his teachings in our Gospels those things which were truly important to our walks with God—they were teachings that would further His mission on Earth. He came here with a mission, and they were uh, there were rabbinic traditions that needed correction. So, how does this make us better representative of God's kingdom? than those who have gone before us. Because i got to tell you something. If we're going to move to St. Louis Park, and we want to be a witness to the Jewish people there, we have to be better witnesses, because I can tell you the witness that they've had has not been very good. You see, we should, if we are following God, be the best representatives of God's kingdom in the history of the world. Let's look for a moment at what we learned about our new relationship, what we've learned so far about our new relationship with God. We have a new covenant with God, and it's not like the first. We learned that in the first, man taught man. The Israelites asked for a mediator of the covenant, and they received Moses. Then that job was passed from man to man, generation to generation, till the time we get to Yeshua's day. He tells us that the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They were now the ones to make the decisions on how to observe Torah. But with the new covenant, no longer will man teach his neighbor. We have what they turned down in Mount Sinai. The ability to hear from God ourselves. Because the one like Moses, who will speak the very words of God, has left us a lifestyle in our Gospels, and he also indwells our hearts, continuing to teach us. We have the ability to interpret Torah for our own lives. And if we keep what is important at the forefront of our minds and keep our flesh at bay, we can be examples of the Messiah and his perfect Torah observance. Amen? Let's look at a command in the Torah that I often get quizzed about because it has to do with food. You know something? Don't mess with people's food. Right? You don't mess with people's food. You can mess with anything, but don't mess with their food. Exodus chapter 34, verse 26. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord, your God, and do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, this is really a simple command. Do not take a young animal and cook it in the very substance that was meant to give it life, its own mother's milk. You know, the Rambam taught that this command was given because the heathens cooked their anim- young animals in mother's milk, and it was an abomination in the eyes of God, and an animal, because an animal uh, killed in the substance that meant was meant to give it life, was an abomination. And so this would be a very simple command to keep, right? However, like that ink blot, others saw something quite different. If we take this command literally, I'm going to tell you right now, it's next to impossible for us to violate this command if we take it literally, right? But overall, the rabbis didn't see this quite this way. They didn't see it as referring to just a kid in its mother's milk. They took a much broader view. And so they put fences around this command. To the point that if you ask the average Jewish person why they don't mix meat and dairy today, they can't tell you where the command originated. It's just something they don't do. Their mother didn't do it, their grandmother didn't do it, and they don't do it either. Right? In case you don't remember from the people of God study what offense is, it's a rabbinic tradition that protects the command of God from being broken. And so we have this command, do not see the kid in its mother's milk. The sages add a fence, do not eat meat and milk together. The fence protects the command of God, because if you don't cook any meat or any milk together, there's no chance that you're going to see the kid in its mother's milk, are you? Then another rabbi comes along and he adds another fence. He said, we shouldn't cook meat and milk in the same pans. Because there's absolutely no possibility that we can make a mistake or accidentally mix the two. Then another rabbi comes along and said, we should probably have two refrigerators because your milk carton might leak. Right? So, we need to understand that the rabbis expanded on this. From not just a young animal and its mother's milk to no meat and dairy at all. They went as far as to prohibit chicken and turkey and dairy, even though chickens and turkeys don't nurse. There is no mother's milk, right? The point I want to make is that there's no doubt in my mind that the rabbis went off the deep end on this one. So much so that in my personal life, I'm not at all, even at all rigid about keeping this expansion of this command. I love Reuben. I love... Chicken a la king. If. If. And we're going to get to the if in a moment. Now, the most, most of these expansions are relatively new. Like refrigerators, two refrigerators. That's pretty new, right? Or a dairy restaurant and a meat restaurant. That's fairly new. However, let's see if we can find just how far back this milk, no milk, and meat together go. Is found. I want to read from the Targum on this passage and we'll get the idea of how this has been taught from before the time of Yeshua. The Targum was read anywhere the Jewish people spoke Aramaic from well before the time of Yeshua because it was the language of Babylon. And so when they came back from Babylon, they had lost their Hebrew language and only knew Aramaic. It's, we read this in Nehemiah 8. Verse 8, it says, They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being said. And what this means is the people no longer spoke Hebrew. They'd taken Aramaic as their language. So to make them understand, Ezra and the other priests translated it to Aramaic. The other thing about the Targum is it's not a literal translation. It's often translated to include a current understanding of the passage, a little commentary. And so we get the idea of how the people understood the Torah and lived out the Torah in the Targum in the time of Yeshua. And so let's read what that passage that we just read reads in the Targum. How it reads. The best of the first fruits. Of your land, you shall bring to the sanctuary of the Lord your God. You are not permitted to either boil or eat meat and milk, both mixed together. And so the rabbis make the people understand that the current tradition was that they took the kid and the mom out, and they just put meat and milk in. Right? Same command: Do not see the kid in its mother's milk. Occurs two other places in the Torah, and I'm going to read them both from the Targum for consistency. I want you to see that this was consistent. The first occurs a little earlier in Exodus 23. It says, The best of the first fruits of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the sanctuary of the Lord your God. My people, the house of Israel, you are not permitted to either boil or eat meat and milk together. Finally, if we go to the book of Deuteronomy 14, it says, Do not eat anything that is damaged in any in an improper sacrifice. You shall give it to the uncircumcised stranger in your cities and they will eat it or sell it to a foreigner. For you, you are a holy people before the Lord your God. You are not permitted to even so eat meat and milk, the two of them mixed together. Okay? You're not permitted to cook or eat. What I want you to see that is this. As far back as we can find this passage translated or in any ancient commentary on this passage, it's always been interpreted, you're not going to eat any meat or milk together. So without arguing the the merit of this, accuracy of this translation, which is unimportant to this, we need to understand that in Israel, in the time of Yeshua, this was the understanding. This was the custom of the people. This is what they did. You didn't eat meat and milk together. It's still the custom of the Jewish people today. Like I said, it's ingrained. The fact is, well, Jewish people, say of the conservative or of the reformed synagogues, may not keep the majority of the commands or even think much of the Torah at all. They don't eat meat and milk together. They seem to keep this dietary command more than likely because they, as people, have been keeping it for so long. It's the way their mother cooked, their grandmother cooked, and so on. And as an example, not too long ago, we had a Jewish woman come in among us. And she wasn't orthodox. She was more than likely a conservative or, or um, reformed. She wouldn't eat at the egg because there was a mixture of meat and milk on the table. The point I want you to see is is this has been ingrained into the Jewish psyche. You don't eat meat and milk together. Right? What does that tell us? That more than likely Yeshua, while he was on this earth, during his mission to save his people, never ate meat and milk together. Now when I tell followers of Yeshua, the Messiah... That Yeshua didn't eat meat and milk together. If they know the Torah and they've heard some of my other teachings. They uh, right away say, Stan, what about Genesis chapter 18? You've always taught that one of these angels was in fact a pre-incarnate Yeshua. Well then Yeshua did eat meat and dairy, right? You know, if we read Genesis chapter 18, we all know the story. Abraham entertains three strangers. One who he calls Lord. And he says, the Lord earlier in the verse it says the Lord appeared to him. After the rest, after they rest, he feeds them. And then they walk down towards Sodom, and Abraham pleads to no avail for Sodom. And yes, I believe that this is a preincarnate Messiah, Yeshua. And so if we read Genesis chapter 18, 8, it says, Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. And so what we have here is Sarah makes some bread, if you read the whole thing. Sarah makes some bread. Abraham's servant is off cooking the calf. And Abraham, at the, when they're done... Abraham serves the bread, the calf, with milk. Certainly indicating that these divine beings, one of which is Yeshua, ate meat and milk together. Now the curious thing here is the Targum reads the same way. It reads this way. He took thick cream and milk as well as the calf from which the servant had prepared dishes and set them before him. And so what we have here is Yeshua eats meat and milk together. And yet you can take it to the bank that Yeshua, when he came to this earth and incarnated, he did not eat meat and milk together because it was firmly established custom of the day. You know, if you read the Torah, or if you read the Gospels, there's no recorded meals of Yeshua eating any meat or milk together. The fact is, nowhere in our messianic writings is anyone found eating meat and milk together. So why do we see this seemingly discrepancy in our in our scriptures? One place it would seem Yeshua and the angels eat meat and milk together, and yet on the other hand, while Yeshua comes to the earth incarnate, he does not eat meat and milk together. If this is the case, and if and Yeshua knew that meat and milk were okay to eat, you have to ask yourself, why didn't he take this tradition to task with the rabbis, this rabbinic tradition to task in any of his teachings? We can start, I can tell you that we can start by understanding that Abraham didn't cook that calf in its mother's milk. Sarah made the bread, his servant prepared the calf, and Abraham took care of the curds. Read the passage. And then Abraham served all three to his guests. That aside, though, I want to give you my opinion as to why this tradition is not challenged by Yeshua or any disciple, because from what I read of the Torah, this decision of the rabbis could be easily challenged. Why not challenge this when he was quick to challenge the other rabbinic fences, say, around the purity laws, like hand-washing, or the fences that they had placed around Sabbath observance. Yeshua did not hesitate to challenge the rabbi's teaching. So why would he not set this tradition aside? Well, I gave you a clue early on. I said Yeshua was on a mission and if you read the message of the Gospels, what you find is Yeshua, with everything that he did, with every word that he spoke, he was focused on completing the mission that his father had given him to do. And by that I mean the whole mission. The writer has told us that the offerings were a shadow of Messiah, while the Olah, or in English the burnt offering, was... Special in the sense that it was the only offering given by the people that was totally given over to God. Not a morsel was given to the priest. All of it burned, a sweet savor rising to God. And the rabbis taught that this was to be the condition of our hearts. And all of Israel, that they should be totally devoted to God, no part of their life that wasn't devoted to God. Well, that's what we see in the life of Yeshua, the Master. Every word, every action in his life devoted to God and to the mission that God gave him to die on a tree to save his people and to complete the promise given to Abraham that through Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And with that in mind, let's look at why Yeshua takes the purity laws to task. One of the really easy purity laws that he disputes really wasn't a command in the Torah for Am Yisrael or the people of Israel at all. And that's hand-washing. What the rabbis did is they took the laws that were intended for the priests alone to wash their hands before entering into the holy place and applied them to all the people in Israel. And so Yeshua took exception to their twisting of the Torah. But remember, Yeshua's on a mission. And these purity laws would have been detrimental to keeping the promise to Abraham that all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So much so that when his disciples didn't get it, the Holy Spirit lowers a sheet full of all kinds of unclean animals to show him that Gentiles in and of themselves are not unclean. God can make them clean as well. You see, the purity laws and the attitude that Israel was pure and the rest of the world was unclean was in direct conflict with Messiah Yeshua's mission to save all men who would trust in him. Another example of the purity issue was Yeshua eating with tax collectors and sinners, the unclean of the unclean. I mean, there was nobody worse in Israel than a tax collector. And so the Pharisees say to him, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? Yeshua, ever diligent to keep his mission, says, it's it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so these are extremely important. You know why Yeshua and the Father orchestrated all of these happenings in his life? They made sure these things got written down for us. Because these laws and this type of thinking would keep them Keeping their promise to Abraham. He takes the rabbis to task on the Sabbath. His disciples are hungry one day, on the Sabbath day. And they're in a field. And they're picking grain and they start to eat the grain. And so the Pharisees say, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. In another place, Yeshua heals on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees say, it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath day. It's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. Yeshua tells them, you're wrong. It's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. So why did the Father and Yeshua orchestrate these events so as to teach on the Sabbath? Well, it's not too hard to understand why they did this. The Sabbath is a shadow of Yeshua's kingdom. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And these added laws were taking the delight out of the Sabbath. You can't delight in the Sabbath if you're hungry, right? Okay, enough of these examples. But you still have to ask yourself, why did Yeshua take these issues to task, but the issue of meat and milk, he remains silent. He says nothing. Well, if you look at why, again, he spoke about the purity laws and the misrepresentation of the Sabbath, it's not too hard to understand. We can see how the purity laws would be a stumbling block. Because... Uh, to the blessing of the nations. So, to the Sabbath day, a misrepresentation, a misrepresentation of the kingdom Yeshua is going to usher, usher in. A kingdom that would be a delight, and no one goes hungry, and people are healed and restored of their infirmities. So, it's not hard to think of why he would come against these. But now, let me th- answer me this How about eating meat and milk? How would that detract from Yeshua's mission? Anybody? I don't think you're going to come up with much because there's no way that would detract from his mission. It doesn't. It's one of those benign fences that really hurts nobody. Let me tell you what I believe. Yeshua on this earth kept the traditions that did not destroy the Torah and did not destroy his mission. He sat down to a meal with Abraham, and he ate meat and milk and enjoyed the meal with his friend. He equally longed to sit down with his brothers, who at the time didn't eat meat and milk together. And because he considered their mission of the Jew, his mission to the Jewish people much more important than eating meat and dairy, he didn't. Paul says this in the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 19. He says, therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone to stumble. It's better, for you, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. And I think there's where we got the secret. You see, in order, there is an order to the commands of God. That was displayed in Yeshua's rulings. We saw it in, the, in his commands on the Sabbath. Healing outweighs thou shall not do any work. Just like helping your neighbor get his ox out of the ditch outweighs not working on the Sabbath. And we all see that, right? should, he told us. Well, the command of most importance, the one at the very top. The most important is love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then the next one right underneath that is love your neighbor as yourself. Yeshua ate meat and milk with Abraham because he longed to sit down with a meal with his friend and enjoy a meal because he loved Abraham as himself. The incarnate Yeshua didn't eat meat and milk for the same reasons. He loved his brothers Israel as himself and was not going to do something like eat meat and milk, and take the chance of alienating anyone. We all know... They came out with a saying a few, a few years ago. It's WWJD, right? And the Messianic version is WWYD, right? What would Yeshua do? Well, we just saw what Yeshua would do. Right? So the question is, now what will we do? Because while I firmly believe there's no problem in eating meat and milk because of our freedom in Messiah and our understanding of the the Scriptures, I also know that Paul said this, You are my brothers, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be de- you will be destroyed by each other. Listen, we're going to be given this tremendous opportunity to witness to the Jewish people, the Jewish community in St. Louis Park. What's going to get in our way of the mission that Yeshua has given us to do? What will get in our way of becoming like Yeshua? Of being like Yeshua? Of doing what Yeshua would do? A cheeseburger? Heaven forbid.